Part 2. Receiving the Light of God Journey Through the Darkness Early one winter's evening, as the glow in the western sky began to dim into darkness and a chilly wind pierced the air, an incident occurred that made so deep an impression on my young heart that the memory of it was to stay with me for the rest of my life. I was in our little thatch-roofed house located right next to the local church. A beggar, shivering from the cold, came to our door to ask for something to eat. My father looked at him for a moment and then asked him if he was cold. I'm freezing, he said. Without saying a word, my father took off his own jacket and draped it around the beggar's shoulders, saying, Here, this is yours now. My father was well known in our hometown for his charitable deeds. He would weep at the sight of the sufferings of others, and he would plead on their behalf to God and to men. Once he even invited a beggar into our house to stay the night. The beggar slept in our only bedroom, and by morning the room was creeping with lice. This was not an isolated event. My childhood memories are full of incidents such as these. When I was about 12 years old, I remember lying in bed talking with my father one night before we went to sleep. He told me of his hopes for the future, and then he said, I want you to be a pastor when you grow up. These few words determined the direction of my life. A sense of calling formed within me, the calling to become a church minister who would truly love others as my father had done. When I was 24 years old, I entered the Presbyterian Theological College in Seoul, Korea, but from the moment I started my studies there, a problem arose in my heart. I had always thought that the students at a theological college would be like angels, and that life in the students' dormitory would be a foretaste of heaven. My expectations were ruthlessly shattered, however, and my disillusionment left an incurable scar in my heart. When the time came for me to graduate, I decided not to be ordained. My decision deeply grieved my father, however, and at his rebuke and the encouragement of those around me, I conceded. At the age of 29, I graduated and was ordained a minister by the laying on of hands, and for the following ten years I pursued this profession. But those ten years were a period of tremendous inner struggle for me. I became totally confused and could not find any direction in my life. I found that my disappointment in my fellow students at the theological college turned into further disappointment in my colleagues of the cloth. In the end, I made up my mind that no matter how other people might live, I would be a minister who would meet with God's expectations. I determined that I would be righteous, pure, and sincere, and I made a solemn vow to God to this effect. Such was the arrogance that entered my heart. Then one day, as I was reading the Bible, I came across the passage in Matthew chapter 22 that tells of how a lawyer came to Jesus to ask him a question. Which is the great commandment in the law? In reply, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. I had vowed to live a righteous, sincere, and pure life, which, naturally, would include obeying the commandments of God. Here in Matthew, Jesus said the two great commandments were first to love God and second to love your neighbor as yourself. The matter of loving God did not concern me too much at that time, since it is such an abstract concept. But when I read, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, these words remained stuck in my mind. They reminded me of my father. He had truly put this kind of love into practice, and I felt that I should do the same. I gave alms to the poor. I took off my jacket and gave it to a beggar. I gave out handfuls of rice but I knew this was not enough. I could take pity on others and help them to a certain extent, but I could not love them as myself. I had no peace in my heart or in my conscience. As the days went by, the voice of my conscience seemed to be crying out to me all the louder. Do you call that loving your neighbor as yourself? One dark night, as I was walking along a little side street in my hometown, I noticed a beggar crouched over an exposed charcoal burner trying to warm himself. I stopped in my tracks, aware of the challenge that now faced me. Was the sermon I had prepared for the next morning now going to become nothing but empty lies, or was it going to be based on real facts? I hesitated, wondering whether I should perhaps take the beggar home with me. I knew if I did this it would turn the whole house upside down, and I really did not feel inclined to face that kind of turmoil. Then suddenly, an idea flashed through my mind. That's it! I'll go home and bring back a thick quilt for him. With this thought in mind, I continued on my way home. The moment my foot crossed the threshold of our house, however, my resolution began to waver. Later, as I lay in my bed beneath the warm covers, the loud cry of my conscience tormented my heart. Hypocrite! You hypocrite! Look at the streets! How many pitiful souls are out there now hungry and shivering in the cold, while you lay here comfortably in your warm bed looking forward to a tasty and satisfying breakfast? Tomorrow morning you will stand up in your pulpit and preach love, telling your congregation to love one another and to love their neighbors. You hypocrite! I agonized over this matter for a long time before I finally fell asleep. When the time came for me to preach my sermon the next morning, I hardly dared to raise my head and look at the faces of those listening as I struggled to read through my manuscript. I became more and more reluctant to preach, and my sermons became more and more meaningless. Why do I have to preach at all? I began to ask myself. When it comes down to it, I'm only doing it to earn a living, aren't I? Heaven forbid! If I'm just trying to earn a living, isn't there a more honorable way of doing it than this? Thus, my life became completely meaningless. Laborers manufacture products. Farmers harvest crops. But what are the fruits of your labors as a pastor? My conscience continued to cry out to me. You have a lot of good words to say, perhaps more than most other people. But how much of what you say do you actually put into practice in your daily life? One day I attended a retreat held exclusively for pastors at a coastal resort. During one of the breaks, I talked about my problem with some of my fellow pastors. 
I told them I no longer had any confidence in my ability to carry out my work as a pastor. One of them said to me, Reverend Kwan, what are you talking about? You are already renowned for your success as a pastor. If you aren't able to carry out your pastoral duties, then who is? To this I replied, If I have two kilos of rice in my rice box at home, I ought to give one kilo to those who are starving and keep only one kilo for myself, but I can't do that. When the other pastors heard this, they said, Oh, come on, who could ever do that? Don't you think you are taking this all a little too seriously? But this is the Word of God, I said. How can we defy the Word of God? To this there was no answer. Then one day, I came across an article in a monthly magazine called The World of Ideas. The article said, A prostitute sells her body in order to earn a living. A teacher sells knowledge in order to earn a living. And a pastor sells morals in order to earn a living. What is the difference? As I read this article, it was as though my conscience had been pierced through with a sharp knife. I felt that a street girl was more honest than I was since her sinfulness was exposed to the whole world and she lived under the contempt of society, while my sinfulness was covered in a shroud of false piety and everyone looked up to me with respect. I would stand up in the pulpit in my gown, looking like an angel that had just come down from heaven, and my congregation would look up to me with respect and veneration. But actually, I was just as sinful inside as a street girl. Even though my actions may not have been sinful, when I saw a beautiful woman, the attraction was there in my heart. When I saw a pile of money, feelings of greed arose within me. So what made me any different? I felt sure there must be some other way for me to earn a living. I even considered giving up my job and just eating less. I was desperate to do almost anything rather than continue this life of hypocrisy. Strange though it may seem, however, once a person has been ordained by the laying on of hands, it is like receiving an official seal for the rest of his life. It seemed there was no way out of my predicament. One evening a few days later, as I finished preparing my Sunday sermon, I suddenly burst into floods of tears, helplessly lost in the darkness and weighed down by the heavy burden of my conscience. Oh, God, I cried out, please give me a different job to do, or if not, please take my life. I can't go on any more as a pastor. Such was my journey through the darkness. Since the day I realized the truth. While I was in the midst of all this turmoil, I had the opportunity one day to hear a sermon given by a European missionary. As he was preaching, he suddenly asked his listeners, have you been born again? His words struck to the core of my heart. When I had been at the theological college, I had been taught it was because I was born again that I believed. I thought that since I believed, I must be born again, even if I was not aware of it. When the missionary abruptly posed this question, however, I became confused. After the sermon, I went to see the missionary and had a private interview with him to discuss my problem. Deep down inside, I knew that if I was not born again, I would definitely end up in hell, even though I had lived as a pastor for ten years. I have always thought I was born again, I told the missionary, 
But today, when you ask this question, have you been born again? I found I couldn't answer with a confident yes. Dear friend, the missionary said, do you by any chance have doubts about your salvation? No, I don't have any doubts, I replied. I have a very firm faith, and I'm confident that if I were to die right now, I'd go to heaven. In that case, what more do you need? If you are sure beyond any doubt that you can go to heaven, you have nothing more to worry about. These words brought a certain amount of relief to my heart, but still in one corner there was a nagging feeling of uneasiness and dissatisfaction. About three weeks later, on Saturday, November 18, 1961, I sat down early in the morning to prepare a sermon for the next morning's service of worship. In those days, when I prepared a sermon, the floor of my study would be covered with books. To produce a good sermon, a pastor had to gather information from a lot of different books and fit them all together well. A sermon was just the connecting and weaving together of the words of various thinkers, literary men, philosophers, scientists, and so on. I thought this was the way to write a sermon. So on that particular day, my whole room was covered with open books as I prepared my sermon. I took Romans chapter 1 verse 17 as my text and chose the title, The Just Shall Live by Faith. I then took as my first theme the section of the text that reads, the righteousness of God is revealed, and began my research into what this means. It seemed natural to associate this theme with Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. As I thought about this verse, I suddenly realized exactly what it was saying and what it meant in regard to my own situation. I came to see there was a difference between my righteousness and that of God. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 10 verses 2 through 3 Man's righteousness is the righteousness of the law. I knew that I myself could not be righteous, but then I came to realize that Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God had become my righteousness, and my conscience was freed from the terrible burden of the law. Thus I came to realize the truth. I knew that I was now justified before God through Jesus Christ. It was not just that I had come to understand. The constant torment in my conscience had come to an end, and my problem was solved. The chain of sin that had fettered my conscience for over ten years was suddenly broken, and my conscience was set free. Now, I could no longer find a single doubt, question, or problem in my conscience, no matter how earnestly I looked. I could not concentrate on my sermon preparations anymore. From deep down in my heart, a hymn of praise and thanksgiving burst from my lips. Everything has changed since my sins were forgiven. Everything has changed since I knew the Lord. Now my feet are walking the pathway to heaven. All the guilty past now is under the blood. Everything has changed. Praise the Lord. Now I am redeemed through the blood, free from condemnation. God is my salvation. Everything has changed. Praise the Lord. Everything is changed by Sevilla de Free Martin, 1866 to 1948. I sang this hymn over and over again from about two o'clock in the afternoon until the sun went down. 
From that moment on, my whole life changed. I was surprised to find the Bible was now completely different. Each verse seemed new, and it all began to make sense to me. It was as though the blinds had been lifted from my eyes and I could see everything clearly. I now saw the world in quite a different light. Everything seemed so trivial compared to the treasure that I had found. My attitude to preaching changed, too. As I looked at my congregation, I no longer paid any attention to how much money people put in the collection box, the social positions of the various individuals, how hard people worked for the church, how well people treated me as their pastor, and so on. Now my sole concern was for the spiritual welfare of my congregation and whether or not they were truly saved and would be able to go to heaven. There are two kinds of faith. There is the kind of faith that is based on an intellectual knowledge of the Bible, God, and Jesus, and on an acknowledgement of the facts. Then there is the faith that is based on the liberation of the conscience. Most people get no further than the first of these and mistakenly think they are thus saved. The faith that brings about salvation, however, is the faith that arises in the conscience. This is true faith. From that day on, I could see no alternative but to preach for the sake of the spiritual awakening of my congregation, whether they liked it or not. I was not afraid of elders in influential positions or wealthy members of my church whose displeasure might affect my financial stability. I simply spoke up boldly and frankly for their spiritual well-being. Before long, expressions of apprehension were relayed to me by the church secretary. People were wondering what had happened to bring about such a change in their pastor who had once delivered such beautiful sermons. Nevertheless, I made a firm stand and told them, Even if you ask me to leave, I will be crying out for the sake of your spirits as I cross the threshold on my way out. I can't help it. Even if it means that I must starve to death, I can't preach just to please the ears of my listeners. Each Sunday I would preach in this way from the pulpit, tears running down my face. After about six months, one or two people amongst my congregation came to realize the truth, and the work of salvation began to spread among us. As this was happening, however, denominational opinion of me began to decline. Finally, as a result of my receiving baptism, my connection with the church was cut off, and I began to preach the gospel independently. After that, I had to face several years of hardship, poverty, and suffering. But all the time, the gospel movement continued to spread as more and more people came to the knowledge of the truth. This is not something that could ever have been achieved through human plans and efforts. We can only be thankful to the Lord, whose work we believe it to be. The End As we listen to this podcast, it is important to reflect on our faith in Jesus Christ with an earnest heart and see if there are any doubts in our consciences. If you have any questions or matters you wish to discuss, you can email us at info at the wordforum.org or call 201-541-9060. You can find the contact information in the description. Thank you.